Welcome to our latest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. This is part two of our investment talk with Christopher May, CEO of Finoa, and Michael Dudlinger, CEO of Cashlink. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Michael. Good to be back. Part one of the talk was about the influx of institutional money into the crypto space and opportunities and challenges of tokenizing equity, debt, and related financial instruments. In this episode, we want to dive deeper into an interesting study you guys or your companies recently published on the cost-saving potential and efficiency gain through tokenization. The study's title is Cost Disruption in the Issuance Market, Why Tokenization Outperforms Traditional Securities Issuance. So, Christopher, you identified cost savings of 35 to 65% across the entire issuance value chain. That's immense, significant. Can you tell us a little bit about the study itself, how it was done, how it was run, which steps in the issuance process you analyzed, and how you derived these cost saving potentials? Yeah, more than happy um, to do so. And, and thanks for welcoming us back, first of all. So may, maybe I quickly start how we got the idea of doing this study. So over the last yeah, 12, 16 months, and especially uh, driven by the tokenization projects we did together, we at Cashling and Finua got a lot of questions and requests from potential issuers, or also interested parties. Who always asked us, yeah, okay, I'm reading about this tokenization, about digital assets, digital securities, and everybody says it's more cost efficient, it's cheaper. And everybody basically asked us, okay, how much cheaper this actually is compared to a traditional securitization. And to be very honest, we didn't have quite the right answer because the industry is, is so young. The structure, as we mentioned in our last podcast last week, is actually not that determined and the whole regulator, regulatory situation is also not that clear. So we said, okay, why not actually dig deeper into that topic and yeah, prepare a study for our own, but also for all the, the different customers and potential leads we have out there. So what we did is we compared a traditional securitization, be it a stock, a bond or a real estate, um, and compared it basically with the tokenization. So bringing actually the asset onto the blockchain wrapped in a token. We did that by yeah, differentiating the different steps along the value chain, starting with the pre-issuance, for example, the legal and transaction structuring, the primary market, the actual issuance um, of the security or of the token. The custody and asset servicing is basically the safeguarding and the management of, of the assets uh, and the rights to the assets across the whole life cycle, including things like dividend payouts and so on and so on. And then finally, the secondary market, which is like the, the trading or the redemption of the assets. Maybe a little bit uh, to the methodology. What we did is we took a sample of all the tokenization projects we have seen so far. And our focus here has been on, on the DACH region, so Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, because of the similar 
regulatory requirements and, and situations and compared that with samples as well as academic research as well as interviews um, with a couple of players from the traditional banking world how a typical and traditional securitization works and then basically tried yeah, to put all the information together got an analysis per step in the value chain and then came up with the overall savings which we also have split down into the different steps um, along the the value chain well, since you mentioned that the cost savings you identified across the value chain were particularly high in certain fields, maybe could you elaborate a bit further why those savings are especially high in the custody and asset servicing field? Now, I think many people might think that uh, blockchain engineers are expensive, working in this new technological field costs a lot of money. Why do you think we're seeing a sharp downwards trend in the actual cost of servicing digital assets, digital securities. And why do you think is it in such stark opposition to the relatively high costs of the traditional field? Mm. Yeah, very, very good question. So I think m maybe I say a word or two about what custody actually is. So custody in the broader sense is on the one hand providing the security of the assets. Obviously, if we're talking about blockchain-based assets, we are talking about the technological requirements to safeguard the assets. But also one very, very important aspect of this is the governance part. Governance in the sense who has access to the asset and how many people, for example, have to come together to move the asset from, from one wallet to another wallet. And to, to your question, Yes, I think it's it's counterintuitive that you think custody for such a, a complex and difficult product like a blockchain-based asset and all the technological requirements which you have to fulfill to safeguard this asset might, might be more costly. But in the end, there, there are two things which indeed make it way cheaper than a traditional custody. And on the one hand, that's the whole part of a digital process. So opening up a wallet or like a million wallets is way cheaper than opening up a million accounts for different users because in the blockchain world, everything is digital. In the traditional world, there are still some manual steps. So if you want to open like a sub account, it takes time. You have to have a signature. You have to send this to your bank and so on and so on. And I think the the second most important thing is the whole part of intermediaries so if you think about the traditional financial system you have a custody bank you have a csd like clearstream banking you have a clearinghouse you have a settlement player and so on and most of these tasks which also fall under the custody and asset servicing space they are actually done by the blockchain so the role of a custodian in, in the blockchain-based world is rather to safeguard the assets and to enable the customers to interact with the blockchain. And the technology, as said, is taking over a lot of the processes and a lot of the trust, which are currently carried out by different intermediaries. To give you one example, if you have a dividend payout, and we have that mentioned in our study as well, Usually a custodian takes a certain amount as a fee to pay out the dividends to, to the investors. In a blockchain world, in a tokenized world where the assets are on the chain and where it's 
kind of easy to write with a simple uh, smart contract or distribution engine to distribute all the different tokens to the investors. So there the thing is the code replaces the manual effort and obviously everything which is technology-based, yes, has higher requirements, but in the long term is actually way more yeah, way more cost efficient um, and cheaper and also faster than if you have like a lot of manual intermediaries in between. Since you mentioned something very interesting here, again, maybe in the traditional world, we have traditional custodians, we have banks, we have intermediaries, um, again, we have notaries and the likes. Now, in this kind of new world, um, we see new custodians, one of them being, of course, you guys yourselves with Finor. For whom and why do you think custody and custodians are playing a very important role in this new area? And who do you think they are most relevant to? Yeah, so maybe to underline my, my intro in the beginning. So I think custody on the one hand is yes, the, the security of the asset, but also the governance of, of the account or of, of the asset. And, and for us, we started um, to focus on institutional or professional investors from the very, very beginning on. Because what we have seen is that, first of all, dealing with the crypto ecosystem requires a lot of technological knowledge, which you can't expect to have from traditional asset managers or family offices. So who are the customers who are really looking to have a custodian, to have a trusted party, and with trust also comes the regulation. And what we solve for the user is on the one hand, we say, okay, we give them a trusted interface. The interface has to be as usable as possible, meaning that it has to be as similar to the, the traditional financial interfaces they are they actually used to. And the third thing is that you have to be technologically on point and you always have to innovate with the market. So we like to call that uh, agility because what you also see is, yes, we've been in the space since, since 10 years and we have seen the Bitcoin wave, the Ethereum wave and so on. But what you see, especially in 2020 with new protocols like Polkadot, Filecoin, Neo, Oasis, there's a constant wave of, of innovation and a constant wave of disruption. And Our customers, which are, yes, family offices, venture capital funds, and so on, they are looking to partner with a player who provides them this trust, this regulation, the usability, but always also the access to the newest innovation and the newest waves in the market. Because in the end, they do not want to go to like a traditional bank, which is now enabling them to store Bitcoin because basically there are, for example, for them more interesting opportunities in the market than Bitcoin. And once they have Bitcoin, they want to get access to lending, for example, or all the proof of stake coins. They do not only want to have custody, but they also want to have the staking enabled. They want to have the trading enabled. So what we are basically seeing is that, yes, custody is the entry product and custody is the most important product because it's, it's yeah, solving the security issue. But our customers are demanding more than just custody. They are demanding a one-stop solution. And this is basically what we are trying to provide them. Well, after witnessing the summer of DeFi and the beginning of staking and mining liquidity and liquidity rewards, liquidity pools, 
what of course is one of the most recent developments is the move of Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0 to proof of stake. And I think as of today, we've reached almost 750,000 Ethereum staked. So the threshold has been met. And uh, the way that many people that I talk to in the field see it is uh, that this is kind of an opportunity for fixed income where they receive at least uh, now around 20%. And uh, in the worst case, maybe 15%, 10%, down to 5% over the next couple of years uh, in Ethereum. So if, if they hold Ethereum anyways for uh, the diversification purposes, staking, of course, can be very attractive. But then again, staking is not that easy. You need to make sure, I mean, this shouldn't happen on accident, but that your node is not acting maliciously or you might lose your funds, that you as a validator keep your technology updated and uh, keep it running. Otherwise, of course, your uh, rewards are slashed. So I think for... Many players, this is uh, not very interesting to do themselves. You need to be technologically savvy. You need to run your own server or whatnot if you want to do it yourself. Even doing something with Rocket Pool is it's not for the faint of heart and you kind of need to understand what you're doing. Now, we see Bitcoin Swiss, for example, staking 100,000 of the 750,000 Ethereum uh, for their clients with the Ethereum 2.0 protocol and the Beacon chain. How are these developments going for you? The way... I see it, or what's for me interesting is, of course, this DeFi future or this financial future where funds are instantly staked, as we saw with, I think it was Revolut, either Revolut or Square, where they offered a normal debit account basically for businesses that pays out unimaginable interest compared to the, I'd say, fiat world because everything's staked with Compound and the likes. Where do you see this going, especially now with Ethereum as like the biggest player moving to proof of stake? Yeah. yeah, I think also one, one very interesting example about that is Circle, like the US player who is, who is behind USD coin, because they are offering like a, yeah, a traditional banking experience as well, where you, their tokens are then lent, like the USDC are then lent. And I think you, you receive like 10% per year if you have it like uh, on a fixed term. I think we are moving to a space where the vast majority of assets will be staked or will either be lent. Because I think in the blockchain system or in the crypto ecosystem, there are so many opportunities to, to generate additional returns. And if you are not staking or if you're not lending, you're actually missing out on something. And especially from our customer group, people are investing because they want to take part in, in these additional returns, be it staking, be it lending, be it that they want to, to trade if, if prices are high, if prices are low. So I think the asset utilization or asset productivity, however you want to name it, is very high in the crypto space and will be even higher the more institutional players um, are entering the space. And that's something which is also very common in the traditional financial world, that if you have an asset lying around and don't ut utilize it, you're actually missing out on, on return opportunities and then you get questions by your LP, etc. Maybe very quickly on the on the ETH 2.0. And I think, uh, Simon, you asked, how do we see that with our customers as well? Funnily, but not surprisingly, we don't see that much interest. But that is also related to our customer group. Because I think, yes, ETH 2.0 has with 15, 20% very interesting return. But the lockups are actually very, very long as well. 
And if you if you take a look at institutional investors, they don't like lockups that much, especially if you think that the crypto ecosystem is so fast moving. We see right now maybe a second bull run of the DeFi space and having huge parts of your Ethereum locked for 6, 12 or even 24 months is something which is like a high opportunity costs. So we got a couple of requests. We also obviously spoke to, to most of the staking providers. You mentioned Rocket Pool, whom we know as well. But from our customer perspective, we haven't seen a lot of interest, mostly obviously to the fact that the opportunity costs of having your ETH locked for quite some time are mostly too high for, for the major parts of our investors. Let us return to the cost disruption study you did and the different stages or steps in the, in the issuance process. And let's maybe go to the last step, which are secondary markets. Uh, Michael, can you elaborate a little bit on what are the benefits of tokenization, especially in secondary markets? Yeah, happy to talk about this. When we looked at secondary markets, of uh, the market is uh, here really at the beginning. And secondary uh, market um, cost reduction is something which will play a bigger role um, at the upcoming year and the year after. So transferring a security right now is sometimes, first of all, very complicated because these sometimes are closed systems and the exchange of assets still takes um, sometimes hours, days, compared to uh, seconds on the blockchain. And so in the long run, what, what we're seeing, the exchange of assets is as simply as sending pay money via PayPal. So whereas um, the exchange of money is pretty easy in these times, the exchange of asset itself is still very complicated. In the future, we will see that we sometimes don't even need the money to exchange assets, but we can swap assets versus assets. So we can do delivery versus delivery instead of delivery versus payment. And this also, uh, this benefit in, in these delivery versus payment processes the, uh, between the trading of assets just results in cost savings for the whole market and for everyone. So for example, in the, in the old traditional market, if you as an individual want to trade assets, it sometimes costs 10 euros. Now we have these uh, neo brokers coming up, like Robinhood or Trade Republic, saying our um, transaction costs are uh, zero or uh, very low. Still, it's run through the old systems, so the transaction costs are still there. There's a different business model behind to cover these costs. In this case, never, nevertheless, um, um, the costs on the technical side are still very cheap because I can really use the system to transfer my token to anyone. Basically, I only have to pay the network fees. I don't have to pay any intermediaries in between. And, and this is why a secondary market becomes cheaper. And then now all the crypto exchanges coming up. What we still don't know yet is how will the business model of these digital asset uh, or digital security exchanges look like? Who is going to pay for uh, uh, listing fees? What are the, uh, the listing fees? This is something we don't know yet as the, the costs um, of the blockchain itself are very low and will be very low, there's uh, space for the digital asset exchanges to lower the costs for their customers and to have a competitive advantage by providing lower trading fees for um, investors and, of course, uh, maybe also reduced listing fees for issuers. So we'll see uh, next year and the year after 
how this market will evolve regarding the, the exchanges. Transferring a peer-to-peer is still very cost-efficient due to the fact that we only have to pay network fees. Okay. I think in your study, you have like derived cost savings for the secondary market between 17 and 50%, which I understand is mainly due to removing, call it unnecessary intermediaries uh, in the process. You also said, okay, we are not there yet, but if we look a little bit in the future, right? We talked about that this digital security market is a trillion dollar market, which is in the end even much bigger than the the crypto uh, markets uh, we are seeing currently. Nevertheless, let's look two, three years ahead into these secondary markets and still considering that the tokenized assets are kind of new assets, at least the technology behind it is new on the one hand side. And then there might be different exchanges trading these assets, also maybe decentralized exchanges. What kind of challenges do you see? Let's maybe start with the classical question of the illiquidity problems of secondary markets. How do you see this in in two, three years? Or do you think there will be no issue? Yeah, I think the liquidity topic is um, one of the big and the hottest topics um, in this space. As one of the main drivers of democratizing is also making illiquid assets more liquid. So I think what is important here to say is it's not an asset is illiquid or it's liquid. So any asset is somewhere in between. And what we are now doing with tokenization is we're basically unlocking the space in between as we're building the technical infrastructure that every asset can be purely liquid, which is now not possible. From a technical perspective, many assets are illiquid. And the second thing about the liquidity is, of course, we have to bring together the investors and the seller and buyers. And we're seeing now a shift of user engagement. In the last 30 years, usually people invested via their bank. And now, coming up over the last 10 years, people are now using banking apps, neo banking apps. My attention is not drawn to the banking app of my bank. It's drawn to other apps and can be completely non-financial apps. So what we're going to see is that more and more non-financial apps will provide investments in financial instruments and providing these financial instruments and to leverage on their access to the customers will mainly be done via tokens because it's way more easier to integrate um, digital securities than traditional securities. And if you think what the next step will be is, okay, you can then connect all these investment channels or distribution channels to secondary uh, markets and there will be integrated secondary markets. In the future, way more people will be able to participate in secondary markets. So there will be higher liquidity just due to the fact that more people have the, the opportunity to be part of the secondary market. Still, there are many issues to be solved, interoperability between these systems, Regulation is a big topic when it comes to secondary market. Nobody really knows how the regulation will be uh, regarding the secondary markets. There has to be uh, EU-wide regulations and so on. So it's still a long way to go, but this will result in higher liquidity for these assets. That's my assumption. Maybe a last question on the secondary market. Do you see decentralized exchanges playing a role in there? I mean, you mentioned the regulatory uh, issues, which are, I think, more severe with decentralized exchanges. And if so, uh, when do you think 
decentralized exchanges yeah, would get a significant share in the secondary market for tokenized assets. It's important to look either at um, um, tokenized assets or to uh, tokenized securities or digital assets. Now speaking um, about really securities, tokenized securities, I think the key um, is only about regulation. So technically it's all possible and we've seen decentralized exchanges, but now, um, especially Germany as a, as a front runner, is regulating the decentralized securities registry, is regulating the way these will be traded in the future. And there are a lot of open questions, open topics, which are really now evaluated within the, the government and the financial department. Let's see the next draft of the blockchain law. And that's why I'm a little bit skeptical about decentralized exchanges when it comes to real to tokenized securities. I'm not sure if the regulator will favor decentralized securities or more centralized securities with decentralized registries. Now for today's golden question, when do you think will we see a big bang moment in the tokenization of assets and the tokenization of securities? What do you think is needed? Um, do we need something more on the regulatory side? Do we need more on the technical side? How many years are we looking at here? Because I think we're all fairly certain that this will happen, that the total digitization of, of the financial markets is a matter of time. But of course, time is relative. Like in the long run, we are all dead, as the famous saying goes. So what do you think is missing? And if nothing is missing, then how long do you think we will need to really hit off this uh, singularity, this point of singularity from where on um, things grow exponentially in the tokenization area? To both of you, whoever wants to take this question. I can, I can happily start on that. I think it's, it's a very valid question. And I think there is one thing missing and everything else is in place and the one thing missing are actually the flagship projects because with all the conversations we had with different banks or also like issuers and all the different players they are always asking okay but how much how much is this asset worth which you are going to tokenize and depending to which bank you speak they say okay below 250 million it doesn't make any sense to be part of this And then you always have to come back to the point and say, yes, okay, we're talking about millions in the blockchain space, which are quite high numbers. But if you think of the traditional financial system, they start to count with billions or even trillions. So what we should also not forget is that the whole market is still kind of small. I'm not going, I'm not going to say uh, it's a niche, but it's still small compared to the traditional financial system. And what we really need, I think, are flagship projects, be it either very, very high issuance values um, or emission values, or it's, it's like flagship projects like the Tomorrow Bank issuance, which Michael and the Cashling team did a couple of weeks ago. So the whole part of tokenization has to have like those front-running projects which get into to the media, which get attraction. And then more and more banks will actually jump on that. Once we have the infrastructure also within the banks, we will see higher volumes, higher tokenizations. But if there's one thing missing, that's definitely yeah, like the flagship project and the interesting projects which people actually want to invest in. Cool. Christopher and Michael, thank you very much 
for providing your insights here in part one last week and part two this week of our Untitled Investment Talk about uh, tokenizing of digital assets. That's, as you said, a really interesting and very exciting future markets, which might be worth trillions of dollars. I recall a study from Finova a couple of uh, years back where it was a double-digit trillion dollar market uh, in, in asset tokenization. And it's also very, was very interesting to learn from you where the cost saving potential, so 35 to 65% in the issuance of tokenization are going to happen. Thank you very much to both of you. Thanks also to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this show and we hope that we can welcome you to our next show of the Untitled Investment Talk.